So this is our last class about Tishrei. It's also our first class during Tishrei. Thank you. May you all be sealed for a good year. So we're going to talk about Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah because that's the, uh, that's the end. Um, so I was thinking what I should speak about because um, you may be aware of this but the main um, unique celebration of Simchas Torah is this whole dancing with the Torah thing. You familiar with this idea? <coughs> yes. And um, there's this whole gender segregation thing and I thought maybe I should speak about something other than dancing with the Torah about Simchas Torah. Because, I don't know, I was thinking, maybe I'm wrong about that, I was just thinking, like, if I was, had a whole class about something someone else does, I don't know if I would, like, want that to be one class about the holiday. So, I could be wrong about that. So I decided I should do something in that doesn't focus on the whole dancing of the Torah thing that's about Shemitah and Torah. So that's what we're going to do. Um... So if you want to find out more about the whole Dance of the Torah thing, there's plenty of resources that you have access to, but that's not going to be this class. What? <laughs> they, don't, they, won't, they won't let you in. There's a gate. You know. Okay. Um, fine. So what I want to do is I want to start by mentioning... Um, a few different things that relate to Sukhasar and Shminyatsaris, and then we're gonna tie them together by getting at the Hasidus, the way Hasidus explains those things. Um, the first thing is the actual name Shminyatsaris. Shminyatsaris um, is the eighth, Shmini is the eighth, and Atsaris is an interesting word. Atsaris can be understood as a, as a, a day of gathering. Um, it can also be understood as like um, absorbing or uniting. Um, and so the idea is that after the seven days of Sukkot, there is, a, there is a, a follow-up day where we kind of gather together and unite with Hashem, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, what our sages say about that. Um, and it's the eighth day because Sukkot itself has seven days. Um, so there's the significance of the name of the day, Shemini Atzeres. There's also the fact that it's called Simchas Torah, the day of the rejoicing of the Torah. Um, and in Chutzlar, it's outside the land of Israel, these are actually celebrated as two distinct days because Shemini Atzeres ends up being extended to two days, as most holidays are. And so the, there's a, the unique celebrations of each day are actually put on a separate day. Um, we're not going to worry about that. We're going to treat it as kind of a whole way to celebrate in Israel. So Simchas Torah is also another name for the day. Okay, the rejoicing of the Torah. We also have that Shemini Tzeres is the day where we begin um, the winter season, um, where we begin praising Hashem for the rain. We don't actually ask Hashem for the rain yet. Does anyone know why we don't ask Hashem for the rain? We're waiting what? Waiting for everyone to get home, right? Um, it's one of the pilgrimage festivals, and so in temple times... Um, all of the men would travel to Yerushalayim and you don't want to pray for rain right when you're about to set out on a journey home, right? Especially back in the day when people generally traveled by walking right? and there weren't paved roads. So therefore, in the land of Israel, we delay the actual request for rain um, for a few weeks in order to give everyone an opportunity to get home. But in principle, the time for the rain is already for Shemini Tzeres. And so on Shemini Tzeres, in the Musaf prayer, they have special editions, kind of like very reminiscent of Rosh Hashanah, actually, where we ask Hashem to give us rain, and the rain should be for blessing and for life and for good things. Okay. That's on Shemini and that's on Shemini Tzeres. Now, in, in Eretz Yisrael, that's the same day where you're also having Simchas Torah and so. But in, in, in um, Chutzar, it's actually two separate days. So that's a third thing. The fourth thing um, um, is that when the first temple was built, there was a seven-day party celebrating the building of the temple. 
And the Pasuk says, the verse says that on the eighth day, the king, the king Ben Shlomelech, sent the people. He sent the people home on the eighth day. Um, and this verse is, is, is brought, Haftar um, and other places, is brought in connection with Shemini Atzeres. Um, now, even though they're the eighth day, it's not referring to the eighth day from Sukkot, it's referring to the eighth day from the celebration of the inauguration of the temple. Um, but the idea is that we see this idea of the king sending the people away, which and if you think about it, this is the end of Tishrei, it's the end of this festive season, is the la- this is the last big hurrah. So there's four ideas. Number one is called Shemini Atzeres, the eighth day of, of gathering. It's also called Simchas Torah, which is rejoicing the Torah. It's the day where we actually start praising Hashem for giving rain. And lastly, it is associated with the idea of the king sending the nation home. And so what I would like to do is kind of weave those four different things together to get a, a deeper sense of the significance of the day. And we're going to completely, like I said, set aside the whole dancing with the Torah thing. Good? Okay. So, in order to do this... Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at one of the psalms. And because I don't want to make any mistakes, I'll read it from the inside. So if you could hand me the sitter, please. It's there. This is one of the psalms that we say in our daily prayers. And it is psalm number Tillim number... One forty-seven. The end of one forty-seven. It says as follows. It says, "Hanesin shelig kitzamer," which I'll just use this translation. He gives snow like fleece. Okay, fleece is wool from a sheep. Okay. Kfur keefe yefazer. He scatters. The frost, like it is dust. Mashlich karchay kfitim. He hurls ice like little morsels. In modern Hebrew, what ptitim are the, you know, like those big couscous noodle looking things? They're called ptitim in Hebrew. So Hashem sends a little piece of ice. We call that in English hail, right? They look like ptitim and they're a little piece of ice. Okay. So basically, Hashem's in a wintry mood here, right? Right? He gives snow like fleece. Right? He scatters frost like ash. He, he sends ice in little morsels. Okay? Does it sound very pleasant? David Melch does not think so. His response to all this is, Before his coldness, who can stand? Meaning, Hashem is way too much in this whole winter mode. Right? Snow, frost, ice. We can't bear this. So what happens? Yishlach Hashem sends his word and melts them. Yashev He causes this wind to blow. Yizlumayim, and water flows. So what happens? Hashem sends his word. He causes the wind to blow. And now instead of the snow and the frost and the ice, what do we have? We have water. Why is that important? Because we cannot bear the coldness. This obviously is talking about Simchas Torah, right? Everyone knows that. But it is. This is a description of Simchas Torah. This is a description of Shemini Atzeres. In Hasidus, when, um, when we want to describe really what is going on, spiritually speaking, on Simchas Torah, these verses are um, employed to convey the dynamic of what's happening spiritually and therefore what we should try to get in touch with. Okay. So we're going to go through this a little by little. I'm going to explain these verses, what they mean according to Chassidus. And then given that, we're going to go back and try and tie together those four different things. The two different names of Simchas Torah, Shemini Tzaras Torah, the fact that we pray for rain, or we don't actually pray for it, we praise Hashem for rain. And finally, that's the time when the king sends the nation home. In, in other countries that are, do they start already now? Start, no. Praying for rain in other countries start at the... Winter solstice. So it's different Yeah. It's a whole interesting halacha question because the, the one could make the argument that you should pray for rain 
um, when it's the rainy season where you live. But um, for some reason, we don't do that. So if you live in Australia, you still pray for rain, even in the middle of the summer. So, go so figure. The whole, like, the whole northern, everybody does at the same time. They start um, December. December or something, right? December 4th. Yeah. And then Eretz Yisrael starts 7th of Cheshvan. Right? But that's when you pray. The praising Hashem for rain, that switches already um, Musaf's on Shemini Okay. So... So the first thing is, the beginning of this phrase starts out that Hashem gives snow like fleece. Okay. Now, what does fleece convey? So one of the things we have to understand is that um, many things in Hasidus borrow from the language of Kabbalah. Um, and Kabbalah very heavily leans into something which is, is not unique to Kabbalah. It's true um, generally of the oral Torah, but it's very, very emphasized in Kabbalah is the kind of use of symbolic association. What does that mean? Um, if you ever want to want to know why learning Kabbalah is dangerous, because whatever you're reading is not actually talking about that. My, one of my favorite quotes um, is that in the Zohar, it says that Rach Alea, our foremother, you heard of Leah, right? The Yachimah's two wives. Leah's feet penetrate the skull of Rachel. Which makes perfect sense if you understand symbolically what lay represents, what feet represent, and what a skull represents, what rachel represents. But if you're thinking about that like as the actual people, right, that's disturbing, right? So, um, and so the idea is that everything, everything is, is kind of a word that symbolically has some other meaning. And you know that, by the way, those other things are used. So, for instance, just to give you just two classic examples, we'll get into the, what we're actually going to talk about here. Um, The um, <coughs> when Avraham came to the place where the base of Megiddo should be built, it was, it's called in the Torah a mountain, a har. Yes. Um, whereas when the other forefathers reached that place, they, it's not described as a mountain. So we see from here that the idea of a mountain is associated with Avraham. Avraham is associated with loving God. Okay? And when Hashem gave us the Torah, he held the mountain over our head. So what does mountain imply? If we see mountains usually associated specifically with Avraham, and Avraham was all about loving Hashem, then a mountain is symbolic of love. So Hashem held what over our head? His love. Okay, so this is, this is kind of the way, it, it, it's not unique to Kabbalah. You find this in, 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 in the Talmudic sages as well, but in Kabbalah it's like very heavily emphasized. And so it's a different way of thinking. In other words, you're not really saying what, what, what it sounds like you're saying. And you, so you have to know how the, what those phrases or symbol, words symbolically mean from other contexts, and then from that you get the deeper meaning. Okay, um, I think one example is enough. So what is, what is the symbolism of fleece? So Hashem is described as having hair, which is white like fleece. So if you ever were to see a picture of Hashem, what color is his hair? It's white. Okay. Now, In what context does Hashem appear as having white hair? Now, first of all, everyone knows Hashem doesn't actually physically have hair, right? Right, that, that, that symbolically represents something, okay? So, in what context is Hashem being described as having white hair? When his children aggravate him. Okay. Explain. Yeah, you're right, but, 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 but not for the reason you think. You're thinking they aggravate him and turns his hair white. The opposite. The idea is, is that, think about like an old kindly grandfather with white hair, right? When the kids are making a big, you know, mess and his, and so he's, he doesn't get upset because he has this kind of love and calm and patience and everything can take everything in stride and nothing is that big of a deal, right? That kind of wisdom and compassion of age. In contrast, those young father with his jet black hair, right, gets very upset if the children aren't behaving properly. So when we think of Hashem as the originator of the law, of halacha, of what has to get done, what's not allowed to get done, Hashem is described as having black hair. When Hashem is understood as being compassionate and forgiving, 
and not getting hung up on our failings, he's described as having white hair. So if you remember, call back, remember way, way back we learned about the 13 attributes of mercy. Remember that? The king in the field. The 13 attributes of mercy are known in Kabbalah as Hashem's white hair. And the white hair is described as being white as what? Fleece. So what does it mean that Hashem gives the snow like fleece? This is referring, a reference to Hashem's compassion. compassion. Very good. So the verse starts off by saying Hashem's compassion, right? That's the fleece. The fleece represents Hashem being in his compassionate mode, so to speak. The 13 attributes of mercy. Um, and they're being described as snow, which is interesting. Right? Yeah. No, when Hashem, when his children aggravate him, he chooses to adopt the white hair so that they're no longer aggravating. He, he, as I like to put it, he goes into Zadie mode. <laughs> and when he's in Zadie mode, then it doesn't matter how aggravating they are. Um, okay. By the way, when is the time when Hashem really adopts that wholeheartedly and fully, that, that kind, generous, gentle, patient view of every Jew no matter what? What? El shows up, but it's like complicated. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. So this is actually a reference to Yom Kippur. Right? The 13 attributes of mercy are an El, but an El there in a way that, as we said, is, is not the normal way. The normal way is on Yom, specifically on Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur is the day of Kippara, Atonement, they see on the board, you guys are learning about this stuff, right? All that comes from Hashem's being that patience, that, that, that compassion, right? that, that ease of spirit, that love, that's associated with a, you know, a zaydi full with white, lots of white hair. But now it's interesting is that this verse then describes the Hashem's compassion as snow. Okay. Now why would it be described as snow? So, and then it goes on to talk about frost and to talk about ice. Right? There's this idea of water freezing, right? What is, the, what is the symbolism of water freezing? So for that, we need to know what water is, right? And then we'd have to understand what freezing represents. And we'd have to see other places where the idea of ice is used as well. Okay, so what does water represent? Life. Water is life-giving, right? And the context of Judaism, the life, what is life-giving for a Jew? Torah. Torah. Right? In other words, Hashem's compassion, the compassion, the patience, the love that he feels becomes what we know as the Torah. Right? It's also, also water is used to represent wisdom. For instance, Moshe was drawn from the water, right? And he's the one who brought the Torah down, right? So you're seeing this, right? Um, and also water is used to represent kindness because of its flowing nature. And, and someone who is wise and kind, they, they, they're, they're, that falls in the same thing. So the idea is that the Torah is an expression of Hashem's compassion. And that compassion becomes the wisdom and kindness that he uses to enliven us which is a beautiful thing, right? Okay. But the water here does not stay water. What has happened to the water? It's frozen. It's frozen. And what's interesting is the freezing is, is who's doing. It's Hashem's doing. It says that, right, he makes it like snow, right? He scatters it like frost. He sends it like little pieces of hail. So why would Hashem freeze the water? Okay, so we have to look at what's this. So this idea of freezing something is that it makes it more solid. It makes it more concrete. Okay. So I'm going to explain by use of an analogy, okay? And the analogy is an analogy. Why do you need to use an analogy? Okay, that's correct, help you understand. But there are many things that help you understand. For instance, speaking, just talking about the idea can help you understand, right? A chart can help you understand. An analogy deals with a specific problem, right? A lack of understanding could come from many different things. An analogy is not always going to solve the problem. What does an analogy do? What's, it's like too hard to like relate to. It's too hard to relate to. Like high. High to relate to. What does that mean, high? I mean, it's, like, like it's on the second story. We have to like get a ladder. Like, what does that mean, it's too high? You said it. I didn't say it. But I said it. I have to, I have to explain myself. But you said it. It disconnected from like 
things that you're exposed to? It's disconnected from things you're exposed to. That's a very good way of putting it. When, when the thing that you don't understand is not part of your experience of reality, right? it's outside of your experience of reality, then your lack of understanding is not because you're not intelligent, not because you're not trying, because you have nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on to. Okay. So, I'm going to give you, and this pun is slightly intended, an analogy. Um, what is something that you have not experienced but other people have experienced? Like, this is a general thing. So one of the things I'm assuming most of you have not experienced, um, but people in life have experienced, okay, is, let's say, raising children. Maybe there's somebody who has raised children, but I'm just looking around the room and making a, a guess that that's not the case. So now... What is raising children like? Your own children, I mean. Not like, the, 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 you may, not the same thing as babysitting or something. Or being a counselor in a camp. What is raising children like? Putting your own needs aside. Putting your own needs aside. Okay, anyone else want to say anything else? Basically like your, putting your all into it. Putting your all into it? Okay. You don't really know what it's like. But, but when you, you were saying, what, what, what do you think it's, so like putting your, all your needs aside, putting yourself on to like what? Like give me... Putting your child first. Putting your child first. Okay. Do parents... Interesting. Do you think parents get together and talk about how important it is put their children above and beyond everything else and they need to work harder on that? Like, do you think that's the main topic of conversation that parents have when commiserating about the experiences of raising children? Why not? It's a lot of guesswork going on here, isn't there? Right? Okay. Um, what about unconditional love? Do parents feel unconditional love for their children? Hopefully. Hopefully. Explain to me what unconditional love is like. Really? Yeah. Um, the thing that you hope the parents like. The love that you can't explain, that you can't live with unconditional love. Well, I, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I mean like, unconditional means without conditions. Yeah. But so, that's pretty easy, right? You know, like, I mean, I, I, well, m- many, many emotional feelings are hard to put into words, right? The romantic love is hard to put into words, right? A sense of pride in your own accomplishments can be hard to put into words, right? So, like, what's this unconditional love thing? Your unconditional love is a thing. Okay. It doesn't come from someone earning it. It doesn't come from someone earning it. Because parents never feel love based on how well their children are behaving. They never feel love. Like, that never happens. You hear the sarcasm in my voice. Okay. It's extremely, it's, 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 the honest truth is that it's a very different experience. And when you start cutting it up and making little pieces, it's very hard to understand. So now, I give you analogies about specific things, right? And those analogies can help make it clearer. But do those analogies ever get you the kind of understanding you could have you have from the actual experience? No. So I'm going to give you, for instance, the unconditional love, okay? So... You know the way in which, like, no matter how messed up you are, at the end of the day, you have a sense that, like, you, like, still have to, like, live your own life and take care of yourself because, like, nobody else is going to do it for you? You know that feeling? Okay. That's the unconditional love of parents. Everything else is earned. Really. Like, you feel that way about someone else. Now, if that other person is cute and they're nice, then you will want to be around them. But if they're just, like, miserable to be around, then the parent might not want to be around them. And they, you know, parents can have very conflicting emotions about children because you could feel, on the one you could feel that way about a person that you feel like you, you have this kind of unconditional care and concern, right? And you wish you'd get along and at the same time. Like, there's a lot of resentment. Like, it's very messy. Okay? But it's not like caring about yourself because when you care about yourself, there's this kind of selfishness in it, right? 
when it's, but here it's someone else. So it's like missing that selfishness. So it's not exactly the same. It's an analogy. It's not perfect. Okay? Which then leads to another thing. Let's go back the other way, right? Like this setting yourself aside for your children, right? Okay. Do you know what's one of the things that as parents, as so a parent, as they mature, one of the things they realize is that you know what children really, really need? They need their parents. And so if their parents aren't like actually people, then their children don't have them. So if a parent sacrifices themselves for their child, like not extreme, extreme circumstances, like, you know, like, like, you know, pushing them out of the way from a car and then getting hit by the car. But like on a day-to-day thing, like if you, if you like set yourself aside to the point that you're like not yourself anymore, then guess what? You provide them a lot of stuff, but you didn't provide them with a parent, right? Now, I'm, right, so this, this, this so it, it's almost the opposite. It's like, you can't put your children first. Like, so, a parent needs to work in order to provide for their child. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily if they want to work as hard as they are, but they do it for their child. That's giving yourself less time to yourself, mm. less time for your own hobbies, less time for things that you necessarily enjoy, not just like sleeping, eating, basic needs so that you can be there for your child. Obviously, like there's certain parts that like so here's the thing if this is an important part of you and you don't do it when you're a, when you're a parent then you won't be a parent you'll be a maid that, that that's a different thing but to the degree to which they're important to you if you don't do them when you're a parent you won't be a parent you'll become a maid and that's what happens to a lot of parents and so it's actually, in other words, there's a way in which you grasp something that's outside your experience. You grasp it. So there's another person. They have needs. I have needs. But almost setting up their needs versus your needs like messes the whole thing up. There's, there's, the care for them is, it, it, is too much connected to like you being you and you you being involved in their life and you being present and so you have to be yourself so if you're if you're just sacrifice yourself even on a even on something which seems to another person just a hobby for your children that can end up not being for your children it's a very different experience and you know what i can talk about it for the next 20 hours and will you still know what i'm talking about exactly no right that's why we use analogies and analogies are very useful but they create a problem which is did you really get it after all the analogies, all the analogy does is it gives you that it's, it's like that in some respect. It's similar to that in some respect. And if you have enough analogies, you're going to get a little bit of peace in it, right? And so analogies have to be things in your life that are like this thing that's nothing like what's in your life. And so the kind of core sense of what it is gets lost. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is the Torah? The Torah is Hashem's love for us, His compassion for us. Right. How he relates to us from that place of kindness and wisdom and, and love and patience. That's what the Torah is. Now, I think it's kind of obvious on the face of it that divine anything is totally beyond our experience. Right? The kind of love and compassion Hashem feels for us is, is totally beyond us. And so if it's going to come down to our level, it's going to come down to something that we can relate to. It's going to have to. It comes right, and so what happens is Hashem freezes the water into snow, ice, hail. We're not going to worry about those differences, and that makes it tangible. That makes it relatable, but that also creates a very serious problem, which is it is the real thing. That's the why. It's, this is why the, that's the the beauty of the analogy of freezing water. It is the water. It is the water. But what? But the way you're not experiencing it the way it really is. When you hold the piece of ice, it's a piece. It doesn't flow. It's cold, right? It's not life-giving. So it is that thing, but in a way that you're not experiencing it for what it really is. So we spoke about how on Yom Kippur, we kind of raise ourselves up to Hashem. Remember that? And that on Sukkot, is Hashem coming down to our level, right? And that sounded very great. So that the idea that Hashem comes down and He's with us and He's enveloping us and He's with us in our lives, it's an amazing and beautiful thing until you think about what the actual consequence of that is in real life. The consequence of that is, 
is that Hashem comes into our life. He participates in our type of things, which means it's now just become these small human, and we'll use the wording here, these cold rules, practices, ideas that become part of our life. Okay? So I'm going to give you an analogy and then we'll talk about it was with Hashem. Okay? Um, would you like some, if you have a difficult project, would you like someone to help you with it? Yeah, most people would have some help with it, okay? Until they think of what that actually means. What does it actually mean for someone to help you with the project? So the project is difficult, there's a lot of steps. Let's say writing a paper, yeah? Remember in high school you had to write papers? Anyone had to do that? Okay, so if you have to write a paper, so there's a lot of steps writing a paper, right? What's the first step? Let's go through this as an analogy. What's the first step in writing a paper? Figure out what you're writing about. Okay, step two. Research. Step two is research. Step three. Outline. Uh, mm, before outline, something else we need to do. Choose your opinion? Well, uh, maybe. It depends if it's After the opinion. See, the thing is, researching, you just need to organize your research. Right? An outline is organization how to present it in a paper, but if it's not organized in your mind, right? If I pick a topic, I read a lot about topic, but now I have just a bunch of random, random pieces of information that aren't assembled in my mind in any way, I can't make an outline. Does that make sense? This is like give like a web rather than an outline. Does that make sense, right? Okay, so I have to pick a topic, research the topic, organize it in my, organize it for myself, right? See all the different connections, how things fit together, and then pick how I want to present that as an outline, right? And then, what's the next step? Right? And then what's the step after that? Review, edit, okay. And we can break each of these up into sub-steps, yeah? And let's say you really have someone helping you along the way. So let's, let's, let's pick the first step, pick a topic, right? So someone helping you pick a topic. So how does that work? Like you, you're like, I don't know what to write about. And they say, well, what do you like? And you say, I don't know. And they throw something out, right? Well, do you like sports? You're like, no, not really. Well, do you like uh, science? That's kind of interesting. What science do you like, right? Like this conversation, is this like a really engaging conversation? Are you enjoying having this conversation? Or would you rather be doing something else? Okay. Then you move on to the next thing, research, okay? So, right, and they say, okay, so take this book, okay? Now you read and take a highlighter, right? As they're going through each, at each, any of those interactions are not like what you think is like, well, this is like a really deep, meaningful interaction. I'm enjoying spending time with this person because the thing that they're involved in is helping you deal with this thing which has a lot of little steps, a lot of little things, right? And so it could be that they feel this great, passionate love for you, which is motivating and helping you do this project, right? But at the end of the day, it's all come down to the level of writing a term paper, and you'd rather be doing something else other than writing a term paper, right? Which is why, like, you know, maybe in retrospect, but, like, no teenager's feeling like, I feel so close to my mother. She, like, worked with me writing this. Like, that's usually not while it's happening, right? You're just like... Can we just go do something fun? The thing is, when you bring something down to the level of the familiar, it becomes just that. It becomes familiar. And familiar things are cold. They're boring. They're regular. They're routine. They're burdensome. Okay. Every morning, before you get out of the house... Presumably you put shoes on, yes? Most of you don't walk around in the street barefoot? Okay. Which shoe do you put on first? I mean, you have to put a shoe on first, right? You can't, like, not put a shoe on first. My right one. Your right one. Okay, why? I learned you were supposed to put the right one. That's right, you're supposed to put the right one on first. God's like, God's like, I love you. I feel this compassion for you. I get you. I want to be with you. Let me help you work with the shoes, Okay. You should put the right one on first. Okay, now, um, you have to eat, right? It's one of the things you have to do. So I'm just gonna make an assumption that you just don't eat anything, right? There's certain things you eat and certain things you don't eat, right? So for instance, pork products you don't eat, why? Right, he's like, okay, okay, I love you, I care for you, I, I, I'm with you, I have those deep compassion, all those things, right? Let me come bring that down to your level, uh-huh. You, 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 you're like one of those like omnivores, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a bear, or like a gorilla, right? Okay, so 
Like, don't eat these animals and plants. Eat those animals and plants. Let's do that, okay? Like, now you feel like, oh, I feel so close to God. We go on and on with this, okay? You're seeing the point, like, if Hashem is really going to bring His infinite love and compassion and care and concern and all that stuff down to us, it's going to have to come down onto the level of human life. And when it comes down to the level of human life, it's just one more technical detail of how to live your life. And so, how does that feel? Does it feel life-giving? No, it feels cold. It feels technical. It feels pedantic. And the fact that that's my only sense of Hashem, that He's insisting me done that way, actually can lead to the opposite, a sense of resentment. Right. And if you think of it, if you, by the way, think about this in the context of an analogy proper, um, if you're really trying to teach an, a profound idea and you're trying to use the analogy to conceptually convey the idea, not like as like a, a metaphor to inspire people, people get very annoyed because you spend a lot of time like working through and analyzing the analogy. So I'm going to give you an example from an analogy in Chassidus, okay? One of the analogies for how God creates the world is like a person throwing a rock. A person throws a rock, the rock will continue to fly only as long as the energy is in the rock. That makes sense? So too, the world continues to exist only as much as God continually invests his energy to create it. Good? Simple enough? I'm on the hands. Okay, now, let's explain the analogy. First off, why is the analogy throwing a rock? Why isn't it like setting the rock, holding the rock in your hand? After all, if I remove my hand, the rock will fall, right? So, why, why specifically throwing a rock rather than just holding a rock? There's a constant, my hand constantly holding it. It's a difference. Number two. Okay. Number two. The rock, when it's moving, right, it's still fighting to go down, right? Anyone who's ever taken a physics class knows that what happens, right? The actual force that the rock is exerting hasn't changed even when you throw it, right? It still has the same gravitational force down, right? Um, so does that mean like the world does, is, that, is that supposed to carry over so it's like the world is like fighting against its own existence even while it's existing or is that not carry over and if it does carry over what would that mean okay I'll give you a third thing okay um, when you throw when you throw a rock okay um, you have no longer any control over the rock right as opposed to if you hold the rock in your hand you do have control of the rock so, so wouldn't it make more sense to use the example of God holding the world rather than like throwing the world. I go on and on, right? And if I keep doing this, at some point, like, oh, that's a nice analogy goes away. What starts to happen is like, it seems overly technical, right? And unless you happen to be the kind of person who really likes overanalyzing everything, it's like, can we get all to the point? But the funny thing is that's the only way to really understand it. I'm just not to leave you hanging. Um, when you hold the rock in your hand, the rock is doing its natural behavior, which is to rest in the lowest possible place. When you throw a rock, it is acting in a unnatural manner, meaning it's ascending upward. Your existence is, the existence is, is, is an unnatural thing, and therefore, to convey that, you need to have the, the rock doing something it wouldn't normally be doing, okay? Um, I, when, in terms, of, in terms of the throwing the rock, you can't control it. The analogy is only for the relationship between the rock and the energy. It's not an analogy for the relationship between the person and the rock. Or to go, but in other words, it's, a relationship between, it's an analogy to understand the relationship between the created entity and God's energy, not the relationship between God and the creation. So you have to deal with the point of reference. There was a third thing I mentioned. There's a bunch of different things. I skipped the middle one. I forgot what I mentioned is the middle one. Okay. But like, it's like very, very technical. It's very, very detailed, right? And that's the way it works. Everything is very, very, very detailed. And detailed things are boring and they're pedantic. And, and so like, we have this whole Rosh Hashanah. We crown Hashem king. We want him through this relationship. And we ascend to Hashem. We meet Hashem and he loves us. And he does, sees only the goodness and doesn't want to list the, the bad to hold us back and all this wonderful thing, right? And he's going to come down and be with us in our lives, Sukkot, right? And then it turns out, you look around, what does that look like? 
That little likes putting on your right shoe, don't put on your left shoe first. Eat these foods, don't eat those foods, right? Marry these people, don't marry those kinds of people, etc., 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 etc. It's kind of anticlimactic, right? Or as David Melch says, in the face of this coldness, of his coldness, who can stand? You can't live, it's not living together with Hashem. So then what's the solution? The verse continues that Hashem sends his word and he melts it. Melts the, melts the snow and the ice. He sends his wind and the water flows. Meaning what? That there has to be something else, his word, his wind, which comes and takes this ice, takes this snow and returns it back to a state of water. And what is that? Well, what is it, what is it that, that turns ice back into water? Heat. There's actually a verse that says that Hashem says, my, my words are like fire. In other words, there needs to be, not just that Hashem gives us his love and his compassion, there needs to be heat. There needs to be intensity. There needs to be passion. There needs to be fire. And that's Hashem's word is fire. And when that happens, then the experience of these little details becomes something very powerful, something very life-giving. It becomes water again. So in other words, if we were to not have Simchas Torah, we would not have Shemini Atzeres, we just end with Sukkot. Hashem has, we have rebuilt this relationship. Hashem has this great compassion. And instead of happily ever after, you have dishes and groceries. You have the, the details of just functioning together. And all of that depth that motivated that gets lost in the day-to-day. And what Simchas Torah is the fire, is the passion that shows what those little, small, mundane, concrete things are really about. They're really about this deep connection. Okay. So what's happening on Simchas Torah is that something new is being introduced, which is how the 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 burning love and the burning passion and the intensity can take and can show how even the smallest and most mundane and most pedantic thing is actually a very powerful and intimate encounter. If you have a lot of passion, a lot of love, a lot of fire, then you can see how even the smallest mundane encounter is actually something very intimate, very profound. It's coming from a very deep place. Someone who, in other words, the idea is on Simchas Torah that the love that Hashem and us feel is not a compassionate love. It is not a forgiving love. It is a intense kind of a thing. And in that intensity, we're able to melt all of this ice. In other words, to see that every little bit of Judaism, every little bit of Hashem entering into our lives, which seems, seems technical and and, and highly detailed and pedantic and mundane and repetitive is actually profound. It's actually deep, it's actually rich, it's actually life-giving. The Torah itself will freeze you to death. The mitzvahs will freeze you to death. They need to be warmed up. And what warms them up is the passion and the joy of Simchas Torah. So now, how can you measure the effectiveness of your Simchas Torah? If you come a month, two months, three months later, and the small details of Judaism are like water, they're life-giving, right? They, 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 they give you a sense of Hashem's care and Hashem's concern, Hashem's compassion, Hashem's involvement in your life, then, the, then Simchas Torah is having its effect. But if they just feel cold and technical and mundane and repetitive, then that's missing the effect of Simchas Torah. So it's the last 12 months? Yep. Every holiday is a 12-month infusion. Right. Everything is for 12 months. So right now, we should still be feeling that joy from last. That, yeah, we, have to, we have to get through the whole tissue before last year's Simchas Torah wears right. off. Yeah. That's why holidays occur once a year. If we need it, if, things that we need, a reg, we need, a, if, you know, Rosh Chodesh we have once a month, Shabbos once a week, right? Certain things once a day, right? Hashem, Hashem knows the right amount. He's like, a, he's like a good pharmacist. He knows how much you need. You know, if you had Simchas Torah twice a year, it'd be like too much. 
Like the, the, the ice wouldn't melt, it would evaporate, and it wouldn't, wouldn't be good anymore. Not too much heat. Okay. So, if you wanted to think about it like this, let's zoom out for a second, give an analogy. Okay, so you have an analogy. If you think from the beginning of Rosh Hashanah through Sukkot is the following. You have a relationship, it broke, there was healing, and there was rebuilding, yeah? That seems like a great story. There's one tiny problem. What's the end of the rebuilding? What happens at the end of the rebuilding process? You go back to regular daily life. And regular daily life is not a powerful, meaningful connection. Regular daily life is a drag. So it needs to be something which is going to change the way you look at the regular daily life as seeing them as these profound moments of togetherness even though they come in these little small little pieces. And so that is simple start. That Shminyatseris, that coming together to live, to, to, to see every, everything as, as an opportunity, as a place of togetherness and not get caught up in just how small and technical and repetitive and familiar it all it becomes. Because it will become that. Don't worry, eventually the relationship will break down. You have to rebuild it. The Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Okay, so how does that explain the four things that I... So actually, before I do that, does everyone get the kind of the basic feel, the theme of it? Okay. Now, do you have to dance with the Torah in order to connect to this idea? No. No. No, you do not. Right? In fact, if you look in, like, like um, in, in the Maimarim, the Hasidic works about Sinchus Torah, a lot of, more of them actually deal with these themes than actually deal with it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, and, um, um, and, and especially the Rebbe talks, the Rebbe talks a lot about Sinchus Torah and dancing with the Torah and stuff. And it, and it ties into this, but this core idea, this is, this is uh, you know, gender neutral. It applies to, to, to everybody, whether you're dancing with the Torah or not dancing with the Torah, right? After we're going to go through Yom Kippur and we're going to have this kind of encounter with Hashem that's beyond our regular life, right? And then Hashem's coming down into our life. And we appreciate that. To realize that we need to make a real switch. We need to, to become passionate about these small little morsels of Hashem's presence in our everyday life. Okay, so now, number one, Atzeres. Atzeres, so Atzeres means coming together, right? To gathering together. Um, and in Hasidus, this notion of gathering is, is understood in, in a slightly deeper, deeper sense, where Atzeres is much more the idea of like absorbing something. Um, and the analogy for this is that when a couple gets married, the, what happens after they get married is they, God will conceive a child. Right? If you think about it, the moment of conception is the ultimate moment of coming together. Why? Because that's a point at which there's an actual, like literally fusion, like one, one has been absorbed into the other, like in a very literal sense. And so Kabbalah uses that as an analogy to describe what's happening between Hashem and the Jewish people on Shemini and Saras. Now it's up until Shemini and Saras, there's always a sense that there's two. We are trying to rouse Hashem being king, Rosh Hashanah. Hashem accepts that and wants to be king, right? We're trying to return to Hashem and he's supporter of that, the ten days of Shuvah, right? Hashem has forgiven us and loves us with this, this profound love and we raise ourselves up to be able to see that, right? We then go back to our lives and Hashem, and Hashem escorts us and wants to participate, right? Sukkot. But there's still always two. Right? At what point is it? At what point has there's a level of fusion reached where there's not two? It's simple stories. There's kind of this, this unification is occurring, and that's the significance of this word atzeres, is that it's gathered together in such a deep sense that it's actually fully absorbed, fully united. And again, the, the analogy for that idea would be like conception. In conception, you actually have the real fusion of the two people. By the way, is that fully revealed though? At the moment of conception, when is it revealed? When the baby's born, right? Um, so the Kabbalists say that that full revelation is the splitting of the sea on Pesach. But we'll have to wait to Pesach to find out about that. <laughs> right. So we become united with Hashem on Simchos Torah, but it's fully revealed on Pesach, whatever that means. But okay. Um, now, why is it called Simchos Torah? So there's an idea that's often given is that we're... The, we're rejoicing with the Torah or bringing joy to the Torah. But there's actually another way of understanding this. There's 
four kinds of joy. How many kinds of joy are there? Four. Four. Okay. There's my joy. There's Hashem's joy. How many is that? Two. Two. Okay. My joy has to do with my things. When things work out for me, then I feel joy, right? When things work out for Hashem, then he feels joy, yeah? Then there's a deeper set. The deeper set is there's when I, my joy is not motivated by things working out for me. My joy is motivated because things are working out for Hashem. Joy for Hashem. Joy for Hashem. It's, I, it's, I'm the one experiencing the joy, but it's joy on behalf of Hashem. And then the converse would be that it's not, it's Hashem's the one experiencing the joy, but it's not joy for his things, it's joy for us. Now think about this. In a relationship, which kinds of joy do you need? You need all of them, right? So let's imagine, take the example of a parent and child, two friends, a marriage, doesn't matter, right? Let's use a marriage. That's the classic analogy of the Jewish people, okay? So if the husband doesn't have joy in how well things are going in his own life, that is going to obviously have a negative impact on the relationship. And similarly, if the wife doesn't have joy in how well things are going for her life, that's going to have a negative impact, right? But if that's all you have, there's no relationship, right? The husband has to take joy in his wife's things, or he has to take joy in her husband's things. And then together, that's a relationship, right? But those are four distinct kinds of joy, aren't they? And so there's a lot of connection, there's a lot of relationship, but that's not real unity. Then there's actually something else where that gets fused together. In other words, that it's not that it's not that you're having joy on behalf of someone for someone else, but it's as if you're one. In other words, that the difference between you having joy for your success and you having joy for your husband's success falls away. That becomes one thing. But conversely, your husband's having joy for your for things going well for you, he experiences it the same way as if things are going well for him. If that's achieved, now that's kind of a real unity. Does that make sense? And so the idea is the Torah, when we live the Torah for what it really is as water, it brings that about. In other words, the idea of Simcha's Torah can be understood as not that it's this joy of the Torah, it's the joy the Torah brings. When the Torah is water, when the Torah is living, when the Torah is not cold, what does it do? It feels like my agenda and God's agenda are not actually two different things. So the split between me feeling joy for my own good things and me feeling joy for how the divine plan is working out, that, that distinction disappears. Or conversely, what does the Torah do for Hashem? That Hashem's feeling that things are working out from his point perspective and things are working out from our perspective are also not two different things. So this, when the Torah is really living Torah as it's supposed to do, which is what the Torah is about, it brings, it brings about that the joy is all fused together. It's one joy. So it's Simchas Torah is the joy the Torah brings. But it's what kind of Torah brings that joy? Going back to what I said before, it's when the Torah is melted back into water. Right? When you're having a sense of participating in shared experiences, then my joy and your joy are not two different things. And my taking joy in your joy is my joy. And if you keep saying this over and over again, you start sounding weird because you keep saying my, you yours, and the words kind of like... But you have to just think about what that means. There's a way in which we go out of ourselves to participate in someone else's life and appreciate them. And there's a way in which we don't need to go out of ourselves because their life and our life is so intertwined, is so unified that they're not distinguishable. And when the Torah is a living Torah, when every little interaction is, is understood and felt to be that, about that kind of unity, then the joy of living our lives as human beings and the joy of the divine plan and Godliness being revealed those end up becoming one and the same thing. So it's the joy that a living Torah brings about. Right? So those are the names, right? So Atzeris is this idea that it's unifying, right? And that unification comes about through the Torah. And that's manifest in how our joy and Hashem's joy fuses into one holistic experience of joy rather than I'm, I'm happy that things are working out for me on a human level and I'm also happy out that things are working out for God on a divine level. And then 
he's also doing two things. No, it's all fused into one. Yeah. You said there's four types. Is the fourth when Hashem is joyful that things are working out for us? Yes. Okay. But but that's still a good relation. It's not it's not unity. Unity went would be that Hashem things working out for Hashem and things working for us are experienced by both of us as the same thing. Okay. And that comes from the Torah. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. It takes work. It takes work. Like everything, there's a spiritual truth, and it takes work to tap into it and make it part of your actual lived experience. Right. Um, and the we pray we praise Hashem for giving rain and uh, you'll notice is rain is something that comes down from Hashem in an unfrozen manner it comes down as water right so the idea here is that Hashem what Hashem gives is rain it's water it's life giving it's not frost it's not hail it's not snow right so that's again emphasizing the idea of the Torah being something that is living right as it reaches us right the idea that the, the ice has been melted um, and last but not least, Hashem sends, the king sends the people away. And that just doesn't sound very nice, does it, right? So remember way back we had these classes about Hashem, crowning Hashem king? And I spoke about how right, there's this question of like, how could there really be a relationship between us and Hashem because we're so fundamentally different? I didn't explain to you why it makes no sense that Hashem is a king, right? I explained to you why it would make sense that a relationship would entail him being a king. Did I explain to you why he doesn't? Makes no sense that he would be a king. I don't think. Okay. I didn't think so, but I, it, I need to explain this now. Is Hashem on a higher level than us? No. That's a hundred percent false. 100% false. He is not on a higher level than us. Why? Two reasons. Number one, to say that something is on a higher level means there is some metric you can use to measure one against the other. For instance, some things are, are coarse enough you can pick them up with your hand, right? Like this book. Some things are so subtle that you need tweezers to pick them up, right? Some things are so subtle, even you can't pick them up even with tweezers, right? How subtle is an idea? It's so subtle that you can't pick it up with any physical object. There's no physical way to pick up an idea. And that's, that's ridiculous because when we speak about ideas being subtle, we mean something entirely different, right? right? The idea that like I can't pick up a, a, a single hair easily with my fingers and any tweezers is not the same idea that the idea is subtle. It's a totally different thing, right? It makes sense to rank them. Or to say um, that, you know, you're talking about materials and some materials are opaque and some materials are translucent, some materials are transparent, right? And then to speak about like uh, bureaucracy being transparent. It's just talking about something totally different, right? There's like a conceptual similarity, but you're not talking about the same thing. Okay, in what sense is Hashem in any way similar to us that we can say that he is on a higher level? What is the point of being like, we live for X number of years and he lives for more number of years? Like we're so smart and he's much smarter, right? When you say that somebody's on a higher level, you're implying that there's some measure of comparability between them. In fact, you go even further. Even to say that two things are incomparable, presupposes that on some basic level they are comparable. Okay. I need a volunteer. I want to do a volunteer. I'm not going to ask you any questions about your personal life. Don't worry. No volunteers? Okay. All right. I would like you to please tell me what is the difference between Hashem and a cockroach? Why did it take you more than five seconds to figure that out? 
because they're so incomparable that you first have to think like why you have to bring them together in your mind to then come up with differences right difference that's why remember in high school or middle school you learned compare and contrast it's never contrast and then compare Every contrast presupposes a basic level of comparison. So to take two things that your mind doesn't even associate and ask what the difference is, your mind like freezes for a second. So does it really make sense to say Hashem is in a greater level than us? And I mean, if you believe Hashem is kind of like some super being than the sky, then sure. But if Hashem is really unlike any of his creations, fundamentally, in those absolute sense, he's not on a higher level. This doesn't make sense to, to, to even make a frame of reference where you put one in terms of the other. Number two, does anything really exist independent of Hashem or external to Hashem? So key teaching of Hasidus is that they're actually true. So as far as Hashem is concerned, there is nothing that is like him enough that he could be compared to. And there is nothing that is external to him that he would be compared to. And so can he be above anything? Can he be beyond anything? Can he be on a higher level than anything? No. And so the whole idea of Hashem being above and us being below is really just an artifice. It's something that's made up. As the verse says in, in Psalms, Hashem malach, Hashem reigns as king. Geus love, she clothes himself in being exalted. Meaning, is he actually exalted? Not because he's, not because he and us are on the same level, but because the notion of us and him being on different levels implies a comparability and a comparability and implies a degree of separateness, which just isn't true. So if we're going to, if Hashem's really going to be our king, then he has to really adopt this role that what? He's in some sense comparable to us. We're in some sense separate to him. In other words, he has to, in some sense, treat us a little bit as equals. Right? The hidden thing behind Hashem being king is that if you start off with a sense that Hashem and us or buddy-buddy is king sounds very, very off-putting. Why? Because that means he's on a higher level. But if you start from the other perspective, that Hashem is just incomparable to anything, and there's nothing really truly independent or external to Hashem, then Hashem being our king means fundamentally he's treating us as equals. Not equal in every respect, but equal enough that he could be higher, we could be lower. That he, we, we have a significance and a reality that is equatable to his in some sense. Now, how could Hashem possibly treat us as equals? And so much so that he gives us sanctions to go off and live our lives. Right? The king says to the people, go home, go, you go, live your lives. As by Hebrew, how, does, how can Hashem treat us with that level of equality? And that's because we've undergone this kind of unity. We carry with him, we carry him with us in our lives. He has, he, he's with us in our lives. In other words, the unity that we achieve with Hashem and Simchas Torah makes it true for Hashem and for us that in some sense we really are equals or as our sages say, we are Hashem's partners. And therefore we can go on and live our human lives knowing full well that what we are, we're not we're not, we're not non-entities to Hashem. Not because Hashem is being nice to us, not because Hashem is being gracious to us, but because Hashem and us have kind of had this kind of experience of fusing together. Can we say, um, like, in, about, like, with the king, that how we reach Hashem is like acknowledging mm-hmm. how vast the difference is. But here it sounds like how equal it is. Mm-hmm. Are those like No, but this is what is commonly understood to um, to be the idea that something has both an external and internal dimensions to it. The external dimension of a king is very much based on this idea of distance. But what's implicit in that is a fundamental equality. Right? And, and that's, that's... There are many things like this in, in, in Judaism and especially in Hasidus where things that appear to be opposite or contradictory, if you actually go deeper into them, one actually necessitates the other. You can't be the king of a bunch of, of, a bunch of animals. Because as a human being, there's a way in which you, just, they don't, you don't participate in reality on the same way they do. And so it's just like, like, as a human being, they don't participate in your human life. They only participate in your physical and animal existence. And so like, you can't, as a human being, be over them. You can just use them or care for them or other things like that. And so 
there is this sense of, of, of equality built into the idea of kingship. And, but what makes that real is that we've come together in that deep way. So those are some ideas of Sukkot Torah that, like I said, I think, I think everybody can derive something from. I think it's also important to realize that if you take these ideas seriously, the Simchas Torah needs a kind of um, an infrastructure to be built on top of. You need to have a Rosh Hashanah. You need to have this wanting Hashem to be a king and the tshuva and the coming close to Hashem and Yom Kippur, right? And, then, and the joy of knowing Hashem wants to be part of our lives. And then all of that can be kind of tied together in this transformative experience of the passion and joy of Simchas Torah. But if you just take the Simchas Torah on its own, there's really nothing there. Like, like, like what, what are you passionate about? And so from a Hasidic perspective, all of Tishrei is really just preparation for Simchas Torah. And Simchas Torah is like the key to life. It makes the ice into water. All right, have a wonderful rest of Tishrei.